Ryan and Desi talk about the need for um, autonomy, which I call freedom, competence, which I call competence, um, and relatedness, which I call belonging. So this is my second book, Motivation, the Ultimate Guide to Leading Your Team, is based on these four core needs that we all share as human beings, the need to belong and to feel part of a group and part of a team, the need to feel competent and we're, that we're respected for our talents and our skills and so on, the need to have some freedom and choice and control over what we do and when we do it, and the need to fulfill our potential. Those four core needs are deep-seated psychological needs, but for most of us, one of those tends to be more important than the others. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Laparta. Thank you very much for joining me. We are going to talk about personality styles today. It's a topic that many people are aware of and have probably been on courses about at some point or another, but I wonder how much we build it into our day-to-day lives. I'll be honest, you know, a lot of my clients ask me about personality styles, I find it difficult to incorporate. And that's why I'm so interested in this conversation today. My guest is Catherine Stothart. Catherine is the author of How to Get On With Anyone, which looked into these personality styles in detail. Uh, And also her more recent book, Motivation, The Ultimate Guide to Leading Your Team, which I'm sure we'll touch on as well. And she's a leadership coach working with Airbus and Google and sharing how they can work with those personality styles, understand themselves, understand other people, so as to build stronger relationships. So a natural fit, of course, for the Connected Leadership Podcast. So Catherine, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Andy. Yes, it's uh, really nice to be here. And great to have you on. I I must be honest, we share a publisher and we share an editor. We haven't met before. I saw Eloise at Pearson share an event with your book, How to Get On With Anyone. And I'm on that mailing list. And I thought, well, with a title like that, we probably really need you on the podcast. And, <laughs> and, and I'm sure it will turn out to be the case. So I mentioned in my introduction that for me, I've done various training around different personality style models. I think it it has real value. And even yesterday, a client was talking about the yellows in her group who have a particular problem that they they want me to address in training coming. So I think it really does have its place and it has strengths, but how can we understand this and integrate it into the way that we engage with people without it overtaking our natural instincts and our ability to listen Mm. rather than trying too hard to observe and understand their style? Mm. Oh, gosh, that's a whole podcast just on that one question. Andy. Well, then I'll shut up and let you carry on. <laughs> I'll just leave so, the outro. <laughs> so one way I often start when I'm talking about this is to say to people, you know, when you communicate with other people, we usually have a positive intention. We don't set out to be awkward or difficult. But sometimes the way we come across can have a negative impact. And then there's a gap, you know, the influence gap. We don't have the impact that we want. So, you know, it is about being natural, but it's about being more aware of how you're coming across and what might be driving your behavior when you're coming across to other people. And it's also about 
being more aware of what might be driving other people's behavior. So if it is, if they are sort of annoying you a bit or whatever, um, you can look beyond that and see what might be driving their behavior. So that's, you know, that's one way of putting it. I mean, yes, and you mentioned different personality styles and different frameworks and models. Yes, there are loads and they all have value. They all help you. My particular book, How to Get On With Anyone, is based on the interaction styles framework, which is specifically about communication. So it's not as broad as something like um, the Myers-Briggs type indicator or insights, which I think you might have been referring to when you talked about yellow. Um, it's not about how your mind works. It's more about what's driving your behavior when you interact and also the emotions that are driving your behavior. Because often our emotions make us behave in certain ways before the more rational part of our brain kicks in. And we think through, oh, gosh, what should I have done or what should I have said? So, okay, let me think aloud a little bit about this, because I've said that I've had challenge using it. And we'll talk about you, the framework that you share in the book in, in a little while and how it differs from other models people might be familiar with. So I think that's an important thing to look at as well. But I want to dig more deeply into why I've always struggled with it. And, and as I say, I remember having a conversation with an NLP practitioner. And I know it's not exactly the same thing, but the problem that I perceive is very much the same. And... He was so determined to mirror me that <laughs> I was uncomfortable sitting on his sofa. It was in his flat and I have a bad back and I found mm. the sofa very uncomfortable. And I said, you know, I guess it's a bit odd, but anyone with a bad back will understand this. Would you mind if I just sit on the floor with my back against the wall? Cause I, I was uncomfortable on the sofa. And he said, that's fine. Do you mind if I sit on the floor? Oh as well? no. <laughs> uh, to me, and this is one of the UK's leading experts in this, but to me, yeah. it was too forced. Yes. And, and I think that one of the most important things for me when I'm in conversation with people, and it's something that's so hard, I mean, actually remote conversations are a great example of this. One of the most important things for me is that when the other person is speaking is to tune into what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And the reason I raise speaking remotely is because if you're trying to make eye contact by looking at the camera, you're not looking at them and therefore you can't do that. And if you're looking at them, they feel you're distracted because you're not, they don't feel the eye contact. So it's that, that disconnect. And I think it's the same thing. My perception is it's the same thing that if I'm so busy trying to work out what your character is or in NLP terms, what, what language you're using so that I can mirror it, mm. I'm not actually focused on what you're saying. Yeah. So, so picking up from your answer, I know I'm going a long way around this, but it's me thinking <laughs> aloud, my stream of thought on this is that, and, and I know this is the way the book is designed as well. If you understand and invest in understanding your own personality style first, and you truly understand it, and you understand what's holding you back, then does it become more natural to pick that up in other people? Yes, yes, it, it definitely does. I mean, I, I sometimes say getting on with other people is largely about managing your feelings about yourself and your feelings about them. So you're absolutely right. You need to be focused. Yes, you need to be listening to them and observing them, but you need to be focusing on the feelings that you've got and managing those and thinking about, right, what's the appropriate thing to do or say in this situation? You know, it's not about getting too hung up on, oh, now exactly what type are they and, and what do I do about that? You know, that's um, too cognitive in a way. Um, we naturally, I mean, building rapport is important and you're quite right. In NLP, you're taught to 
mirror to some extent. So if somebody's speaking quite slowly, then you're supposed to speak more slowly to match them. If they're speaking more quickly, then you're supposed to speak more quickly and so on. Um, but that's just to get on the same wavelength. But beyond that, then it's, yeah, be natural, be yourself, but be aware of what is happening within yourself. So, um, you know, <laughs> just trying to think of a, of a quick example. My husband likes to um, think things through carefully and so on and think things through to himself and take his time. The worst thing I can do in that situation is sort of rush him and say, no, no, we need to do this. We need to do that. We need to do the other. I need to just give him that space. So that's the sort of thing I, I mean in the book. It's seeing what the other person needs and adapting that in your own behavior. And the other thing that comes up for me from what you've just said there and also from your first answer is it, it doesn't necessarily need to be in the moment. And I think that's what's held me up before. So I wrote a blog for Psychology Today a couple of months ago. And my original blog was going to be me venting about people interrupting me in conversation because it's a pet hate of mine. When you're telling a story or you're in a stream of thought and someone cuts you short and takes it in a different direction, I know I'm not alone in that. So I was going to do an exploration of why people do that and how to handle it. And I posted it on LinkedIn first just to see if it was just me being a miserable old sod <laughs> or whether other people felt the same. And also just to get a sense of why people do it. And it changed the whole blog. Mm. because it became less about how to deal with it and more about how to understand why it happens and mm -hmm. I guess to adapt your behavior to understand where they're coming from and their behavior so I guess what's yeah. been holding me back in is that in the moment how do I mirror you how do I match your pace and so forth that I struggle with but actually to be able to do what I did with that blog take mm. a step back understand where people are at over the long term of a relationship start to understand their style and then make adjustments over time rather than in the moment to that. Mm -hmm. That's a lot more manageable. So mm. is that much more where you're coming from? Yes. And of course, at work or at home, we do have these long-term relationships. Um, so just going back quickly to my husband and I again, um, when I first came across the Interaction Styles Framework, and I've been doing um, personality type 16 personality types and so on for many years, 30 years, in fact, before I came across interaction styles. But what I realized was one of the things that causes conflict between my husband and I is a difference between our communication style, a specific thing where he has quite a directing style. He's comfortable telling people what to do. I have a more informing style, giving information. And that causes an enormous amount of conflict between people generally, not just, I mean, this is not just something I've discovered personally, but I see it at work as well, where um, if, if you've got a directing style, you'll tell people what to do. If they have an informing style, they don't want to be told what to do. They want to be given some information and think for themselves what to do about it. And similarly, if you naturally have an informing style and you give people information, other people with a directing style can feel that's quite manipulative. And this even comes across in how you ask questions. So somebody with a directing style, if they want to use, I'm sat here on quite a big PC at the moment. If my, my husband wants to use the, what I call the big PC, he'll probably say something like, oh, can I have the, the PC at two o'clock, please? So it's very clear what he wants, etc. And I can either say yes or no. If I want to use the PC, I'll say something like, oh, how long are you going to be on the computer? <laughs> 
And it's not because I'm f- afraid of him or anything. That is just my natural style of communicating. So even how we ask questions has a different impact on other people. And if you start to understand these, then yes, over the long term, longer term, you can gradually adapt and learn to be more directing or more informing or, or whatever it might be. I really like that example. It paints a really clear picture and one I think many people can relate to. And again, I think it makes this this whole approach a lot more accessible than I found it in the past because I can start to see how I use that already. Yeah. Um, how I, I think particularly I've always thought of this and maybe it's because, you know, I was exposed a lot to people talking about NLP, um, which is, a, I guess, a cousin of this rather than a direct match. Um, mm. uh, you know, 20 odd years ago, quarter of a century ago. And the way I understood that and the way it was taught a lot of the time was, you know, when you first meet someone, to me, this is something you pick up, reiterating my last question, I guess, it's something mm. you pick up over time. You learn that style over time rather yeah. than read it in the moment. And it's more powerful as you have a long-term relationship with people, whether that's a personal relationship like a marriage or a professional relationship like a team colleague. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give you another quick example, if I may. So one of the styles I call the mobilizer style. So they're people who their inner drive is to get things done, get action with results, make quick decisions. And they come across as quite um, sort of straightforward, direct, determined. One of the guys I coached, I used to work with Audi. And one of the guys, head of business of an Audi dealership that I coached, he had that style which was fine. So positive intention, you know, getting things done is good. So he had a good positive intention. However, what he would tend to do would be he'd go to his managers, the sales manager, customer service manager or whoever, and ask them to do something. Half an hour later, he'd go back and say, have you done it yet? So, you know, I had to coach him. And of course, they had a million other priorities and their managers. So I had to coach him to when he went to ask somebody to do something, to agree with them when they were going to do it by or when they were going to come back to him and not to go back to them and chase them up until that time that he'd agreed. He used to get very frustrated because he'd say, well, they haven't done it yet. They would feel undermined, you know, disempowered, not able to make their own decisions. So just, it sounds so simple, but a simple little bit of coaching on something like that actually made a big difference both to him and how he felt, you know, he felt less frustrated, less impatient, but also to them because they felt they had more autonomy and and more empowerment and so on. We all, one of the biggest mistakes we all make in building relationships is seeing everything from our own perspective. Yes. Uh, And this is all about understanding other people and seeing it from their perspective and, and meeting them where they are. Yes. Rather than expecting everyone to meet you where you are, which I think is really important. So, so you've touched on a couple of the styles within the model you teach. You mentioned you, you did some work on the 12 styles. So I haven't done any deep dive into this, as I've probably made quite clear. Um, but am I right in thinking that this originally all stems from Carl Jung and, and yes. personality archetypes? Maybe you can just give us a bit of background on how to understand the difference between personality archetypes, personality styles, what are the different models out there, yeah. and how, how do we determine which is the right approach for us? And then, then tell us a bit more about your model. Okay. So it all, you're right, it comes from the works of Carl Jung. His book, Psychological Types, was published 100 years ago in English. Um, and people have been working on it, with it, etc. ever since then. He was the person who 
invented the concept, invented the terms extroversion and introversion. And that's probably the most widely known of personality aspects, if you like, that difference between some of us are more extroverted, some of us are more introverted. And what does that mean in terms of our behavior? So he, he invented that. But his theory or parts of his theory were about how our mind works what information we pay attention to, and how we make decisions. Now, various um, bodies over the years have taken his work and operationalized it. They've turned it into questionnaires and so on for people to assess their own personality type. And the most famous of those is Isabel Myers and Catherine Briggs, the mother and daughter team. And they created the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator which I think is the biggest, um, you know, it's the, it's the one that's most widely used, best known. So that's a way of getting some insight into your personality type. Um, there are other um, tools out there like Insights, which we mentioned. There's something called the Golden. There's um, organizations like Type Coach and Type Pro. So there are other ways of finding out your personality type, but those all go back to the works of Carl Jung ultimately with various enhancements and developments over the years. The other main way that psychologists look at personalities in terms of traits, you know, am I more um, a detail conscious person or, or whatever? Um, I quite like the type approach because it's more of a whole approach. You're looking at a whole person. It's a bit like if you had a, a lion and a leopard, they would be two types. But they share certain traits. So they're furry, they're carnivorous, you know, they both growl or whatever, growl. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> um, Depends how angry they are. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. So trait approach is valuable. The type approach is valuable. And it, I think it, what you use these different tools for depends on what you're looking for. I think type is a really, whether it's through the Myers-Briggs type indicator or any of the others, it's a really good way of developing yourself. It's more about self-development. It should never, ever be used for assessment and selection. It's not a psychometric for those. The Myers-Briggs company regards it as unethical to use it for because it's not about skills and abilities. It's purely about how your mind works and so on. So I'll stop talking about that. You, well, you well actually, can I, can I just <laughs> yeah. come into on that? Because yeah. it's a really interesting point because it is quite widely used for, for recruitment uh, and selection, isn't it? Unless people are using something else. But a lot of people have talked to me about using that type of analysis. You can certainly use traits. Um, and I'm qualified, um, BPF, British Psychological Society, Levels 1 and 2. I'm qualified in some of these other psychometrics like Occupational Personality Questionnaire, Savile and Holdsworth. They are trait approaches. And yes, you can use those for um, selection. I would never select purely on the basis of those. I would always, the way those are best used is as a, as a prompt for some interview questions. So if somebody comes out they're all normed. If somebody comes out above or below, you know, the norm on something, you might want to probe that area in an interview. Um, but that, so that's fine to use those sorts of trait-based instruments for selection, but not type-based instruments, okay. um, because they literally are not about skills or abilities. They're about, as I said, how your mind works. And in the case of interaction styles, how your emotions work, really. Um, so you asked me about other similar things. So, so the interaction styles framework relates to the 16 personality types of the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Um, so if you take those 16 types, that's a lot of difference to get your head around. But what interaction styles does, and it was this model was created by a lady called Linda Behrens, an American 
for the PhD, who worked with David Kiersey, who wrote about temperament. Um, anyway, it's a way of collapsing down the 16 personality types into four groups of four that's particularly relevant to communication. So these, the, these are groups of people that have similar patterns in how they communicate. So there are these four interaction styles. Come back to that. But your other question, there are some other similar tools to interaction styles. So there's the DISC instrument, yeah. which is published by Wiley, which is similar. As far as I know, DISC does not bring out that extroversion and introversion difference which I think is a pity because I think that is a really important aspect. It's one of the first things we notice about other people when we communicate with them. Um, And I don't think DISC brings out that sense of the inner drive. What's driving my behavior when I communicate? What's my positive intention, even if I'm having a negative impact? Um, And then there's the social styles model of Bolton and Bolton, um, which again has similarities with interaction styles. So there are other similar um, tools around it. You're quite right. The interaction styles framework has four styles of interaction. So this is purely about what people do and say when they communicate. So it's not about what I'm doing when I'm sat in my office by myself. It's all about interaction and communication. Um, the four styles, Linda Behrens uses her, her own set of names. I actually use different names, but it's still the, the Linda Behrens model. So I've already mentioned mobilizer, the people that want to get something done quickly and um, want to get quick results and make quick decisions. The, that's an extroverted style. The other extroverted style is the energizer. So they're people who um, their inner drive is to get people involved, bring people together to collaborate. Externally, their external behavior is um, very engaging, very expressive, very persuasive. Um, It's a bit like the sort of energy you would have if you were hosting a party. Um, Whereas the, the mobilizer energy is a bit more the sort of energy you'd have if you were in a hurry to get somewhere. So, as I said, they're both extroverted styles. Um, another thing I should st- say about all the styles is we do, we can and do flex between them. So, although Energizer isn't my natural style, when I am hosting a party or running a workshop for that matter, I have more of that energy. But then, because naturally I'm more of an introvert, when I go home, I need to be quiet and recharge my batteries and so on. Um, then the other two styles, Navigator, So this is a more introverted style. When they have something to achieve, they like to work out how to get there. They like to take time to think through the decisions and plan how to get the result that they want. They come across as very intense, very focused, a bit like the sort of energy you would have if you were revising for an exam. And they can be quite reserved. So quick example, my work at Airbus quite a lot of the people have that style, particularly in the engineering management and the the quality management functions. And when they go to a meeting, they'll automatically go to the meeting, get their laptop out, stick their heads in their laptop and start doing some work while they're waiting for the meeting to start. Whereas the more extroverted people, for example, the mobilizers and a lot of the operational people in charge of the manufacturing have the mobilizer style they'll be talking to each other and and getting a bit of business done before the meeting starts so you can see how you know these styles we impact each other so the 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 mobilizers will look at the navigators and think you know why 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 are they talking why why have they got their heads in their laptops what are they doing what are they keeping secret 
Um, and then the fourth style, I'll quickly come on to the fourth style. Um, another introverted style is known as a synthesizer. So when they are working on a project or a task or a target or whatever it is, they like to gather lots of information to make sure they get the best results. And they like to consult with people. Um, so they'll even something simple like, you know, where should we go on holiday? If you're discussing that in your family, they'll want to ask everybody's views and try and come up with something that's the best result for everybody that meets everybody's needs or takes in all the relevant information to get the best best result possible not just a quick result like the mobilizer or a or a sort through result like the navigator so you know these different things come out in in many well all the time they come out all the time in in the in our home lives and our work lives and so on um yeah so does that give you enough of an overview of those four styles? Absolutely. absolutely. You preempted my next question, actually, because as you started outlining them, I was going to ask you how much we can adapt and flex between them, because I can see bits of myself probably in all four, to be honest. Yes. And certainly I think it's very context dependent. Yes. We hope that you are enjoying this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Don't forget, you can download your copy of Andy's book, Connected Leadership, from Amazon and other leading online bookstores. Do you find people who do have one particular style that they stick to, or are the vast majority of people, just how much do we flex between them and how context dependent is it? We do flex between them and it does depend on the situation, but but it's also believed that we have a natural, you know, inborn style, if you like, that's our core that comes most naturally to us that we default to. But we naturally and often without thinking about it, we also flex to other styles. And again, it's worth knowing about the styles because you're just then more aware, consciously aware of all these options for behaving more flexibly depending on the situation. So although mobilizer isn't my natural style, I used to coach junior badminton. So these were sort of nine to 15 year olds, mainly boys, sadly. I mean, I loved it when girls turned up at the class, but it was mainly boys. I was a mobilizer when I was coaching them. I was very directing, telling them what they were doing and when they were going to do it. And, you know, being quite fast paced about stuff to keep them occupied so yes we do flex depending on the situation I mean an obvious example would be if you're about to make people redundant you're not going to be better using for example the navigator style calm considered planned organized controlled etc than the energizer engaging fun sort of style so so we do naturally flex but just being aware of this consciously gives you so much more well awareness and an opportunity to flex your own behavior and to adapt to other people and what they need from you so you know if you know you've got somebody who's a bit more introverted working for you you can um, give them more time to think things through. If you're in meetings with people and, and there's a mixture of people, people, you can make sure that the people with the more outgoing styles aren't dominating all the time and that the people who are naturally wanting to think things through first get the time and the opportunity to do that. So there's all sorts of ways you can apply this. And I mean, really, when I first came across this particular variation of personality types, if you like, I I really liked it. I liked it personally, as I've already mentioned a few personal examples, but also when I started using it with teams, they can get it really quickly and really easily and start applying it straight away. 
Um, there's a lot of depth in things like insights or the Myers-Briggs type indicator. You know, there's immense depths actually that can take many years to, to, to fully understand. But with interaction styles, you can start using it and applying it straight away. I mean, I have a number of friends who have this sort of energizer style. So, you know, I consciously, when I talk to them, I am more upbeat and more chatty. I have to sort of gear myself up to be a bit more chatty to to, to get on the same wavelength as them. So some of this is, I guess this is going back to what we were saying earlier about rapport, but some of it is getting on the same wavelength and then go somewhere else or, or take people with you, perhaps. If we can... If it is context and environment situation dependent and we can flex between different styles, can that create a situation where someone gets uh, sort of, I'm trying to think of the right term, but confused. It's not the term I'm thinking of, but it'll Mm. do. Um, Where they see someone in a work environment, for example, where they are, uh, they consistently demonstrate one particular style as their dominant style, but then, they engage with them in a personal environment and they see a completely different person around their family, for example, or so on, and they don't know quite how to engage with them. Does it create a disconnect? Yeah. People often say, oh, I'm different at home than in work. And and people often say that when they take the Myers-Briggs type indicator, you know, and you tell them to answer it as in their natural, whatever comes most naturally to them. So, I mean, there's a couple of different things in here. One thing is we can change our behavior. That doesn't necessarily mean you've changed your personality. Personality is consistent and and repeating patterns of behavior over many years. But in any particular case, you can change your behavior. Um, so I guess people, it is right or, or, or true that some people will say, I behave differently in work than at home. But then I think the next question is, well, are you being true to yourself? Are you acting with integrity? Are you acting with authenticity? If you feel your behavior is so different at work than at home, that would be my take on that. I think we do have repeated patterns, you know, deep-seated things So, you know, I like to analyze. This is going a bit beyond interaction styles now, but I like to analyze things and think through things. And I do that in my home life as well as my work life. Whether people are more aware of that in one setting than the other might be different. I don't know. Okay. Um, Okay. So in the book, uh, you you look at three areas and, and how this knowledge helps us understand these three areas. And I think it's very relevant to why I believe people listen to this, this podcast, for example. Uh, one of them is how you influence other people. Uh, one of them is understanding where power comes from. And one of them is understanding where charisma comes mm. from. Um, so I'd just like to explore that a little bit. How do we use the knowledge of these styles to influence other people to build our power in an ethical, correct way, an Mm. appropriate way, and to be seen as charismatic. Wow. That's several chapters in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let me just take influence first. So I'm always slightly, I know when I first came across NLP, again, similar to you, a long time ago, I thought this sounds unethical, trying to make people do things that they don't really want to do. So when I use the term influence, I don't mean that. What I mean is matching your impact to your intention. 
So one of the ways when I'm coaching people, one of the ways we'll talk about influence is when you have some communication to make, maybe you're doing a presentation in a meeting, maybe you're doing a phone call or or a video call or whatever. Do you think about the outcome that you want? So the first thing is what outcome am I trying to achieve in this? Maybe I want somebody. In fact, I, I remember a few years back coaching one of the managers at Airbus. He was going to be communicating with a colleague who was based in the States and was a woman. And he was a bit nervous about both those aspects. So we started with, okay, what's the purpose of the meeting? What is your ideal outcome for the meeting? Which does sound a bit like NLP, actually. Um, and, and also a bit like cognitive behavioral therapy, actually. But anyway, what's your and ideal outcome? Just to say, it also sounds like common sense. Oh, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Auntie. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you want from the meeting? What is your ideal outcome from this meeting? And then you work backwards from that and think, okay, well, what information do I need to give this person? And in what form? How do I need to put that information across? What words shall I use? What tone of voice? What body language? You know, um, as I mentioned earlier, if you're making people redundant, your tone of voice and body language is going to be different than if you're trying to gear people up because you've got this wonderful new new project in hand. So for me, influence is about matching your impact, your intention, but being clear on what your, your intention is. And then words, tone of voice, body language, content, listening to the other person, thinking about, well, what, what do they want? What does that question? They've just asked a question. What does that, what do they need from me? Um, So I sometimes talk about communication as, you know, there's an outcome at one end, but then there's the inputs at the other end of words, tone of voice, body language, asking questions, listening, building rapport, all those sorts of things. So and and there's there's plenty about about all of that in the book. Going on to power and charisma, I think power and charisma are two slightly different things. And this is where integrity becomes important because you can be charismatic. For me, charismatic, the definition of charismatic is making other people feel good. If you make other people feel good, then you tend to be seen as a charismatic person, a charismatic leader. Um, But there has to be some morality for me underlying that, some integrity underlying that, because you can make people feel good. But if the outcome that you're heading towards is illegal, immoral or whatever, then you are not using your charisma or your power in a, in a good way. So, and I touch on that a little bit in the book. And 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 power, yeah. There's also charisma is a form of power. Then there's other forms of power, of course, like the power we get from our position if we're a leader in an organisation, or the power we get from being an expert and so on. But um, and I think this is you know this whole power charisma area is one of the the problems that we have with some of our I won't mention names but some of the recently in the Western world and probably the rest of the world too, actually um, that they have power or charisma without having that moral underpinning, yeah, and that integrity. If you want to increase your charisma in an authentic and yeah uh, and with integrity, mm-hmm. how does this knowledge of styles help you to do that um well increasing your charisma is about making the other person feel good so if you are um, responding to them more appropriately if you can see for example if i can see that this person um you know is a navigator and wants to have a plan and is a bit worried and a bit concerned until we've got a plan then my response would be okay let's sit down and make a plan and that 
makes them feel better. It makes them feel good. It also makes them feel more significant that they matter. We all have these needs to feel significant that we matter, to feel competent and to be liked. Significant, competent and likable are needs that we all share. So as a leader or as, or as anybody, you know, with your friends say, making them feel significant, competent and likable is, is a good way to be more charismatic, not criticizing people, not knocking people down, but praising for them for what they've done well, showing that you like them. People don't like being being criticized or made to feel small. Yeah, and they like to feel valued and heard. Yes. Uh, yes. And I think that's really key there. So so let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Um, and one of the big problems that a lot of people face is imposter syndrome in one form or another. Maybe more an understanding of your own style, but but either way, understanding your own style, understanding of other people's styles, help people to manage that imposter syndrome and to move themselves forward in their career, in their role, where otherwise they might have held themselves back. Yeah, uh, uh, definitely. So when I first took the Myers-Briggs type indicator myself, and I, I did it as I was working for an organization where we were using it with, I was in leadership development, we were using it with some uh, groups of leaders. So I had to get qualified in it first. My first reaction was one of, oh, it's okay. It's okay to be like me. I was relieved. I wasn't that odd. I wasn't that weird. There were other people like me. So I think knowing about these styles, which is, as I said, a, um, a more collapsed, a short, a, a simpler version in a way of personality types, but knowing about these styles um, does make you um, realize that, yes, you are okay. You, you, uh, and, and there are other people who are like you. You're not odd. You're not weird, etc. And that makes you feel more confident. And if you feel more confident, you perform better. And this is why football teams usually perform better when they when when they're at home because they've got the the support of the home crowd so they feel more confident and they perform better. Um and it's 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 about that really. It's knowing yourself makes you feel more confident and also on the other side being more aware of the styles and realizing why for example your boss always appears to be nagging you or criticizing you or chasing you realizing that actually it's not so much about you, it's actually about them. And, and they've got this need to, to make sure you're, you're getting the results. As I said at the beginning, you know, a lot of getting on with people is managing your feelings about yourself and your feelings about them. And I think this interaction styles um, helps you with both, both sides there. Yeah, it, I, I, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and again, going back to what I said at the very beginning, starting with understanding yourself. I think is the key. Whereas my perception previously was, yeah, I want to get past that. How can I use this to understand other people and converse with them? But we need to understand ourselves first. Your most recent book is Motivation, the Ultimate Guide to Leading Your Team. How does the two books tie together effectively? How does this impact how you can motivate other people you work with, whether you're, they're a direct report to you, whether they're colleagues, peers, clients, whatever it might be? How can you use this to motivate people and get the best out of them? Okay. So I, I want to almost ask, answer that in two ways. On the interaction style side, you use this to motivate other people just because you've got a better relationship with them. 
and and you know you will have a better relationship you'll understand them they'll understand you and you can talk about your work and everything else and and so on but to go on to the second book the second book is based on a a different way of collapsing down the 16 types into a different uh, four sets of four so it's different but related so there is a, a sort of an interrelation between them and the four groups in this particular case are they go back to your core needs, our core psychological needs. So most people have heard of Maslow. And at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is what he calls self-actualization, which is really about fulfilling your potential, the need to fulfill your potential. And we believe that everybody has a core need for that. However, um, there are other, there are three other core needs that are well known in, in academic psychology and, and research. So Ryan and Desi talk about the need for, um, autonomy, which I call freedom, competence, which I call competence, um, and relatedness, which I call belonging. So this is my second book, Motivation, the Ultimate Guide to Leading Your Team, is based on these four core needs that we all share as human beings, the need to belong and to feel part of a group and part of a team, the need to feel competent and we're, that we're respected for our talents and our skills and so on, the need to have some freedom and choice and control over what we do and when we do it, and the need to fulfill our potential. Those four core needs are deep-seated psychological needs, but for most of us, one of those tends to be more important than the others. And if you're a leader, for example, with um, a high need for competence, say, you're probably the sort of leader that wants to introduce new technology, innovation, improve processes, contribute to progress. If your team members or your colleagues on your management team are people that have, say, a high need for um, freedom, they might be really good at the tactical skills, dealing with a crisis, dealing with an emergency, but they don't necessarily want to be interested in the things that you're interested in. Um, but you actually need all of these things. So knowing about what motivates you means you can try and manage your life to do more of what energizes you and less of what drains you, basically. So if you have a core need, high core need for competence, then yeah, find yourself a job where you've got more chance to innovate. If you have a high core need to belong and follow tradition and, and duty and responsibility, find a job that that draws on those or manage the job you've got to give yourself more chance to do certain things and 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 not so much of the things that drain your energy it's really about knowing yourself as a leader and i think leadership you have to know who you are as a leader really before you can lead other people that's the starting point but then it's also okay well what motivates them and if you're not sure on an individual basis just go back to those four because all four are important to us Make your people feel part of a team. Enable your people to do what they're good at and use their talents and, and so on. Catherine, that's fantastic insights. Thank you so much. Uh, I feel uh, that I understand this so much more than I ever did, even though I've been surrounded by it for years. I haven't taken the time to really understand it. Uh, and conversations like this, as well as books like yours, really make that journey a little bit easier. Um, so I found it fascinating. I normally have to jot down lots of little bits for quotes and so forth i haven't been doing it because i've been so engaged and engrossed in what you've been saying so uh, i've created more work for myself but it will be pleasurable work so thank you very much for joining me on the connected leadership podcast thanks andy it's been a real pleasure i've enjoyed talking to you thanks so much to catherine for, for joining me if i could sum up 
uh, what I've taken from this. It's something that I've been talking about a lot lately, um, and that is meet people where they are, understand where they are, and then you're going to get more out of the relationship. But it starts from understanding yourself. If you think back to the recent episode we had on self-compassion, self-awareness and self-worth, if I've got the three selves right, I think this is a great compliment to that to that episode. And so dig that one out. It's only a few weeks ago uh, on the Connected Leadership podcast. But again, I think that going back to my very first question to Catherine, one of the most important things is this is a very powerful tool if you use it with authenticity and integrity. It's not about manipulating people, it's about understanding people so that you can meet them where they are. And that's a really big takeaway for, for me. Uh, I hope you found this fascinating. I certainly have, as with all my guests. Really interesting content, really great ideas. There's more to come. So join us again on another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe. Tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.